0: Well, I became a Christian at the age of 16 in 1977. So that means a couple of things. It means a number of things. Uh, first of all, if you've seen that 70s show, you know way more about my life than I want you to know. Um, it was a difficult season for me, and God found me in the midst of a lot of not great stuff. The other thing that you maybe should know relative to this passage is that uh, the church, the evangelical church especially, was just killing it in the 70s and 80s. Like, that was our time. Uh, in fact, in 1976, Newsweek decided that it was the year of the evangelical. And, um, you know, we were not aware of it, but at the time, we were just in the waning days of uh, the historic Orthodox church dominion over almost all of the places where power is ensconced in the United States. Uh, Still somewhat in cinema, certainly the academics was changing, but um, the heads of all of the uh, industries, uh, whether or not they believed it, they knew they had to acknowledge a certain framework of uh, morals and values. And I became a Christian in 77. In 87, I went to seminary and um, I tell you, back then, I had no idea that we would be. I mean, I did, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I had no idea we would be in a world which was so radically different than the world that I first came to faith in. Uh, we came, my wife and I, to Seattle in 1995, and we knew we were leaving the Midwest to the coast. We were leaving a semi-rural environment to the city, and we knew what we were getting into. And we still love it, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But we didn't know, even though it was already different, that it would be this different. And certainly since 2016, specifically probably November 2016 or 17, we, we've been in a world that really um, is different, especially for people who hold to a historic view of the person and work of Christ and the way of life of the Christian. And I want to tell you that um, regardless of what's happened in America in the last 40 years, um, the reality that we're different and we're not ensconced in power has been from the very beginning, from the very first advent. That's what's going on in our passage. We're being told that we don't really belong in the same way that the rest of the world belongs here. But this passage is filled with subtle and not-so-subtle hints about the fact that Jesus came to make the world upside down, right side up. And he's still doing that 2,000 years later. And what that means for me, and what I hope it means for you, is that it's exciting. It's actually um, an honor to be alive and serving In the church in the United States when God has shown us the great kindness that has been true all along which is we don't run the world the way we once did and that provides for us a spectacular opportunity and a challenging opportunity to live by faith the birth of the king is a call to genuine gospel resistance And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want us to see the old kingdom, which is pictured here in these first verses. I want to see the new king and the new kingdom. And then I want to talk a little bit about what it means to really live a life of gospel resistance. So let's begin with the passage. Um, These very famous words that begin with a very significant person, Caesar Augustus. And that's what you should know and understand about entering into the story of the birth of Christ, that it begins with someone who apparently, that's important, who apparently runs the world. And he decrees, literally a dogma, he makes a determination, and as soon as he makes that determination, hundreds of thousands of people start to rearrange their life and go back to their senses. But I want you to see what's... uh, hidden in this great kingdom in this established kingdom look at the language look at the people look at the characters caesar corinius so you got caesar up here corinius right here who's the next person mentioned joseph and mary and whoever else The irony of the account is that this established kingdom, this great picture of the kingdoms of the world and the order of fallen creation, this Caesar who rules by fear and power, he's running everything. But he's actually running nothing. He decides, and you and I, well, he doesn't decide. You and I decide. If you're Caesar, what do you do? You decree. And everybody follows that's the word that's their dogma determined course a policy even a law and that's how caesar's worked uh, occupying army they oppressed uh israel and everywhere else they went they did oppressive taxation they humiliated and were vicious so what what i want us to see in these first six verses is that the world appears one way but the story of christ is a uh, it, especially what's hard to see it now, two thousand years later, when Jesus is rightfully such a big deal all over the world. But, but back then this this Savior just sneaks in as a baby. But but he sneaks in as a baby as we'll see he's really he's really owning Caesar throughout the whole thing. And the, part of resistance is to understand the reality of this kingdom. This was And and the fact that it's powerful and fierce and the world has uh, a tremendous amount of say in uh, how life operates and what's important and it can do a lot of good or a lot of harm to us, but there's also this little baby in the world who's no longer a baby. This kingdom is um, everywhere, but it's actually not a kingdom at all. It's a different, it's, it's subjected to another king. This is the way... Israel had always lived. Now, just to, before we, we move on to um, the subjects and look a little bit more at them, just be reminded that, that Israel was under Egypt slavery, then the Philistines, then the Moabites, then the Babylonians, then the Assyrians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So that's a thousand years plus of Israel's history. And, and also properly understood, so we too also are always living in a world that outwardly is, is um, operated by a set of principles that are different than the one that we're called to operate under. For example, in the world, what does the world say? The first will be what? First, right? That's how the world works. The greatest will be what? Well, they'll be the greatest. We're living always in that place. Winston Churchill famously said that, um, history will be kind to me, because I will write it. Well, Jesus is actually writing history. Take a look at this declension. I want to, I want to point it out now: the the decline of significance in the whole account of the um, birth of Jesus. It, it starts with Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? And then um, Mary and Joseph, these, these non-people, they're significant now, but they were completely insignificant in the time. And then it all of a sudden, in the order of the world, it spikes up to Caesar and Quirinius. And then it goes back down, Zechariah, Joseph, the shepherds. Understand that these are the people that represent you and me. Now to put it in, in terms that at least work in Seattle, Mary and Joseph—they're not the—they're not the hit people. They're not the cool people. They're not the influential people. They don't have say or sway or cachet. I didn't mean to rhyme that three times. I'm so bad. I'm so sorry that third word came out because that sounds. You might think I did it on purpose, and I want it on record that I didn't. It just happened. But um, they don't have any of that. And, and what I want us to understand is that that's the way we live in the world. There is an inherent, uh, in the world's eyes, our hopes are foolish. God's promises are fantastical. Our creed is absurd. The, the way that we see life flourishing is um, not the way the world sees life flourishing, through repentance and chastity and generosity. We're always that outcast people. The kingdom of the world is real and significant. There's enough overlap in the kindness of God's common grace that good things happen in it. I'm not here to tell you that the whole world is evil and you should run away from it. But I will tell you that the world is evil and you should not embrace it. That we need to be careful about how we whether we live on the coast like like we do or we live in the midwest like where i grew up whether we're what i would call amerangelicals who want the country back for god or or urban gelicals who who want christianity to be like a little more hip and relevant either of those two extremes they have more to do with our myers-briggs and enneagrams probably than we want to admit in our setting because neither of those two groups of people get to live like this is home like this kingdom is their kingdom so what do we learn about the kingdom that's truly our kingdom well let's Joseph went down from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David now that's significant because what we're finding out about this kingdom. We could say a kingdom within a kingdom, but it's actually, theologically, it's a kingdom above the kingdom. It's the kingdom that really rules the earth. And the first thing we learn about it is that it's older than the kingdom of the earth. This allusion to David goes all the way back to about the year 900, longer than Rome has been a thing. And David, as an emblem, a picture, of the reinstitution like trying Adam over and over again that's what the bible does Adam we try Adam he screws up Adam again and Noah he screws up you know then it keeps on going Moses David till finally Jesus is called the last Adam this kingdom goes all the way back to the beginning it's the kingdom that was established in the garden being remade outside of the garden and David in the lineage or or Joseph in the lineage of David is this um, shouted whisper in the accounts of Luke like hey the real king is here I know I just mentioned Caesar I know he's got the armies and the palaces and the power and he's telling you where to go but I want you to know that in the midst of that God is fulfilling his promise this ancient promise you know eventually um, one of the rulers of the kingdom of the earth would understand how significant this was this son of David coming. In in the tragic irony, Herod seems to be the only person outside of the Holy Family and the others immediately around that understood the significance of the coming of Christ. And what did he do? Well, he slaughtered the innocents, all the children under two in Bethlehem. And that, in, in this account, is a... Is, um, a signal of the significance the world somehow some way understands that that wherever you lie on the political spectrum the life and death and resurrection and dominion of the son of god our lord jesus christ is a threat to the way that this world operates. It would be good if we remembered that, wouldn't it? If we understood that we're, we're in kind of a, a, a grace-centered, not a power, but still an insurgency by the way we live. You know, George Washington in 1787 um, did us a big favor because like calling the president your highness was actually like a living option in 1787. Like they were trying to figure out what to call the president. And aren't you glad that for the last, whatever, I'll say 225 years, we don't call the president your highness. Whatever George Washington was getting at, we have one king, we have one ruler, and it's an ancient kingdom, much older and will last much longer than the others. The second thing we learned about it is that this kingdom mostly is covert along the, uh, across the ages. It's certainly um, known now, but the way it enters into the world is through this secret little child and this um, young mother and woman of faith and courage and her faithful husband. That's the way it's always been. Caesar is clueless. Um, Caesar's dogma is doing God's work. But that's what's always happening. Understand this. That's always happening. The kingdom of God is always doing its business, whether it's apparent or not, whether you perceive it or not. This is what Jesus himself said. He said the kingdom of, uh, of God is at hand. He said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. He said all these things because he wants us to know that even in our humility, in our humbling, I should say, which in my view, the church in America is undergoing a a fatherly discipline of humbling, even then God's working his purpose. He's doing his work. We see this in a significant way in, in Joseph and Mary's journey. Joseph, I think, knew this, and why? Why? Why do? Could we know that Joseph understood that God was moving even in the midst of Caesar's dominion? Well, because archaeology and ancient histor- history has t- taught us something significant, and that is that when you went to register your family, the head of house could go alone. So think about that for a while. Um, Joseph could have gone alone. Joseph has a a wife who is pregnant, so pregnant that, you know, you didn't have to be you don't have to go to med school, you know, to figure out that she was going to have a baby any day. And yet he goes on this long journey with her. It's entirely conceivable that he understood and had read the scriptures that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so it is with us. We understand that Jesus rules everything for the sake of the church, and we do our business. We live our life. We, f- we live according to God's promises and follow his ways. I hope humbly, I hope full of love, but also deliberately and courageously, we move covertly through all the ages. I want to encourage you. It's very easy to understand that the kingdom's covert in Seattle and Maybe Portland right now. Uh, We're not making a lot of splashes. But but I do want to remind you or at least point out to you that you and I live in the age of the most explosive growth in the history of Christianity. In the last 125 years, the church has grown at a faster pace, even relative to its numbers, than at any other time in 2,000 years. There's no faith on the globe that's growing, as many places and as profoundly as ours. But you know what? I haven't seen that up in North Seattle yet. And uh, but that doesn't mean God's not working because um, not only is it covert right now; it's it older and covert. But it's also, God's got a better dogma, we'll call it, although the the word for decree is not used in this passage except for Caesar. Um, What is God's law? What is his decree? What is his dogma? Fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. That's the dominion of the gospel of God in the person of Christ secretly implanted into the world by the person of Jesus, and it's announced by angels. When the angels came to these shepherds, the shepherds were terrified, as you would just... I don't recommend you go on Reddit a lot, but, but go on Reddit and, and look for pictures, uh, <laughs> uh, biblically accurate pictures of angels. It'll change your view of when an angel shows up. Don't tell Brian I told you to go on Reddit. Please, don't, don't tell him that. But the, uh, they come and they frighten them, but their, their fear uh, reveals the glory and the magnificence of God, brighter than the sun. But it, it takes all that magnificence, all that glory, and applies it all to this gospel of grace, this kingdom, that will be good news and great joy to all the people. We'll talk about that in a moment. Centurions. when Caesar wanted, by the way, to kill you as a noble, if you were a noble person, and Jesus wanted to kill you, this is how it would often work. He would send centurions and some soldiers to your house. They would arrive at your door. Your servant would come, and they would ask for the nobleman. And the nobleman would come, and the centurion would look at them and say, Caesar wishes you dead. And then you were dead. So imagine all that fear, all that power. There's no appeal there, but then imagine all that comes in the form of an angel, and the angel says, the God of heaven and earth wants to bless you. And he brings good news of glad tidings. It's a better way. Our world, the world we live in, the world Christ has made is a better way. And it has this hidden king and that's the challenge for us our king still is hidden in this passage not only is it bring this gospel but where the angels tell him to go go find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes just wrapped up hidden before that before the swaddling clothes he was hidden in flesh this naked baby child who is actually the son of David by the flesh and the Son of God by the Spirit of God set apart, hiding right in our midst. For reasons that um, we can infer some shape to, his intent to uh, not destroy the wheat with with, um, the weeds and his desire to gather all of his people, Jesus still remains hidden to the world. We're always going to be those suckers that believe something that we can't see. That's just the way Christianity has always been. And the things we can see, the things we do see, are, are often unimpressive, like a child. And that's just that's just our destiny. But what we understand by faith, what we learn by watching Christ work through scriptures and then in our own hearts, is that this secret king that moves stealthily through the world is um, greater than all the kings of of the earth. And he even rules them even now. You you know that because as soon as they're told to go to this um, baby, right, what happens next? This giant choir of angels explodes and sings, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. That's a magnificent declaration of the magnificence of Christ that you and I, you and I will see by faith if we hold to the end, as Jesus told us to, we will see who the true King is. We will will behold his manifest glory. And majesty and excellence he will shine brighter than all of those angels that surround him and then we will know at that moment that we were right that our king was greater than any other king on earth that his message was truer that his way even when hard was more loving We take that by faith now because we've heard angels sing, glory to God in the highest. But that's what we have right now. Christ has not revealed himself in a way yet that matches the wonder and majesty of that angel choir, but he will, and he has revealed himself to ears that can hear and eyes that can see. He's made himself known to his people by his spirit. And it's on these people that good news and great joy is given. So what does it mean then? How do we live? How do we live, whether we're Amerangelicals or Urbangelicals, you know, how do we live? And, And the first way we live is to um, check our allegiance. Um, The scripture says that uh, he has shown favor will be for all the people. Now, let me get a little geeked out on grammar. That article there, the the definitive article, uh, means that God's ultimate eternal favor is going to the people that receive him and hear his word and enter his kingdom through repentance and faith. That is where you belong. If you're a follower of Christ, and I don't assume everyone here is, and I'm glad if you're not, and you're listening, you're hearing at least part of what it means to do this. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't get to be from Oregon, or from Alabama, or from Mississippi, or from California, this is, we're from Washington. I mean, we, I love Washington. I love Seattle. I love Seattle even when I it makes me, when it frustrates me. But I cannot be from Seattle. And that would be the same. You know, <laughs> people like moved over to other states. I won't name them, but a lot of people have moved to other states during COVID, you know, because they want to be from that state. They don't want to be from Washington or Oregon. And so, uh, okay, we're talking about Idaho. All right, so we all know that. So the, um, and that's like, okay, you, there's reasons to move, but I'm like, don't go over to Idaho and think you can be from Idaho. We have, to choo- we, have to, we have to choose our allegiance. Joseph and Mary obeyed Caesar, but they chose who their king was. And so do we. Now, let me... Poke a little bit, perhaps, because after the benediction, I'm driving up to Seattle, so I won't have to. This will be for Brian to clean up. But, but the um, here's what we're apt to do in this uh, Angelico and gelico. We're we're apt to say, well, the the gospel has uh, a lot to say about uh, structural justice and racism and inclusion, and it does. Thank God, it does. And so. Uh, where we live, we're, we're liable to stand, put all of our weight on that foot. You know, if we if we lived in another place, the gospel has a lot to say about personal responsibility and sexual purity, doesn't it? And so in that place, we might stand over on that foot. and And sort of, that would be our missional groove, our congregational ethos. Or the other one would be. Well, I think choosing allegiance means you can't choose between those two you you can't you you have like it's like the church is like thanksgiving dinner you know your awkward uncle is going to be there or your annoying nephew is going to be there because Jesus said a lot of things about a lot of things and it's not it's it's not going to serve us well if we, if we only take those things to heart that are um, meaningful to our neighbors. I'm sure it's good to start this. You can even, I mean, that's a good thing. I do that. But Jesus has this message, and that's what, that's what allegiance, uh, or that's what allegiance means. The second thing is, related to that, is get ready to wander. Everybody's wandering in this passage. Joseph and Mary are wandering. The shepherds—think about where everybody is. The shepherds are uh, like working at night, kind of trying to get some sleep out in the field. They go back. It's actually a word they, they go back. There's like bivouacs. Like they're—they're they're not. They're impermanent people. Everybody's moving. Nobody's at home. And and that kind of wandering is a metaphor, probably more than a metaphor for what our life is like. My great-grandmother Zoe when she was 18 left Ireland all by herself floated all the way around South America and landed in um, San Francisco to start a life by herself what a courageous woman right you know why she was so courageous well because it was that bad in Ireland it was so bad that that sounded like a good idea but see she had something easier than we do she like left and didn't come back we have to like wander and not leave. It's like living as a Christian in the world is like breaking up with your high school sweetheart and then you see them in the hall every day. And the world's right there with you. But you can't really be at home. And I think that that, um, I think that, that metaphor, that metaphor of wandering but not really leaving it will serve you well. You're, you'll always be a little awkward here. Now I know Portland likes its weird, you know, but uh, you're going to be weird relative to the weird. It's just the way that it is. And then there's there's one more thing, and then and then I'll close. So um, pick our allegiance, live a life of wandering, uh, and then prepare to lose before you win. Because that's what, in my view, that's what the church in America has always been trying to do, not lose. And we were killing it for a long time. And God showed us great mercy and a lot of good things. I'm, I'm not against everything that happened in the 80s and 90s. In fact, I was, I was leading the church during those decades, so I guess I should own some of it. But, but there's no way to do Christianity without being humbled, without being marginalized in some cases, without losing What happens to Mary and Joseph? They have to get up and go. They can't even stay in their homeland. What happens to the poor families in Bethlehem a couple years later? They're all weeping. What happens to Jesus when he grows up? He gets about two years of fame followed by a year of trial and dislocation and conflict that ends in his death. And his death ends in what? His resurrection. So don't be afraid of the marginalization of the faith. Don't be afraid of your own isolation from your neighbors. Not because you're a jerk, but just because you speak the truth in love. Okay? Love people. You're called to love people, not always make them feel loved. So embrace that. Don't enjoy it, but embrace it. It's the way of the cross. Now, I want to—I um, just want to point out one thing, because it's really everything, and it's why in a lot of your uh, Bibles you'll notice that this section um, sometimes ends at verse 20, and then there'll be one of those section breaks. But you got to have verse 21, because what it does is it tells us the whole story of the gospel. Who's mentioned, who gets a name? Who's the first person named in verse 1? It's the king, Caesar Augustus. Who's the last one in verse 21? They gave him the name Jesus. And where did they give him the name Jesus? Right in the temple. And what is the temple? Except the throne room of God. There's a glorious Holy Spirit art to the scriptures. And in, a, in this secret way, Luke is signaling to all of us, you don't worry about what happens in the next chapters. Yeshua, the son of David, is in his temple. And that's still true. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have come. I thank you that we celebrate your coming. May we live it every single day. We pray for your mercies. Help us to choose our allegiance to wander with you and to embrace loss that we might also embrace the victory of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.